Look again with me at verse 25. These are the words of Jesus himself speaking to his 12 disciples. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now hear me. These are some of the most shocking and countercultural words that I have ever encountered in my whole entire life. And it's no surprise to me that they come from the lips of the Lord of heaven and earth himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of a kingdom whose values, whose moral standards, whose rule of conduct and behavioral code openly and directly oppose, openly and directly contradict, are openly and directly contrary to the codes and standards of the world in which we live. And to both the Roman and Jewish cultural perspectives, and even to our own cultural moment, these words of Jesus descend upon us like a bolt of lightning that rocks and fries all the circuits of everything that are hit by it. Now, we in our day might, unlike the Jews and the Romans of this day who saw humble service to another as a vice, as something to be avoided, and not only avoided, but also something to be mocked and insulted and laughed at, that's how they viewed service in the Roman Empire, we in our, we in our feigned efforts at presenting ourselves as humble will pay lip service to the words of Jesus here, Right? I mean, I don't think any of us would stand up and openly disagree with the notion that Jesus puts forward here, that greatness comes through service. I don't think any of us would stand up and say, you know what stinks? Humility stinks! After all, in the Roman Empire, it was power. Everything was about power. That's what everyone wanted. That's what everyone strove for. And so here, over the last three chapters, Jesus has been plucking this specific note, explicitly repeating over the last three chapters this same note. In verse eight, chapter 18, verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the note Jesus has been playing for the last three chapters in varying ways and with varying examples. But oh, so often, right? Oh, so often, we like the disciples. We like humanity in general. While we will pay lip service to this, we actually refuse to live this out. I mean, you think about it. Who really desires, who really seeks for, who joyfully and happily, with great delight and gladness, pours themselves into leadership when that leadership position calls for said leader to lead from the bottom up rather than from the top down? How many of us sign up to be servants and slaves with great pleasure? Those who labor with little to no recognition, no thanks for the work done, 
who spend themselves without seeking gratitude and honor, but instead seeking with no reference to yourself or myself the benefit, the advancement, the growth, and the betterment of everyone around you. How many jump at the idea to serve and be a slave to sheep that bite and headbutt and wander and leave the fold and argue back as you try to serve them? Not many. And I'd take it even a step further and say that without the Holy Spirit in us to empower us for such a role, none of us would do it. Our natural tendency as a race, as humanity, is to aim for positions whereby we can exercise our authority from the top down. And this is why we experience, even in the church, even among the body of Christ, indignation and anger and divisions and slander and malice and all the rest because we think oh so highly of our own ideas and our own opinion and our own person now listen i'm not speaking down to you here i am speaking as one with you we assume others ought to bow in submission to us and if they don't we lash out don't we turning our face against them. And it's not long. If you've been in churches, if you have been a Christian for any period of time, you have probably seen it. As indignation pours out, spills out, and we labor to begin dragging others into our own faction. Again, if you've been in church for any period of time, you've seen this happen, and hopefully your heart has broken over it. This, for some reason, is one of the awful sins that local churches are so prone to. One of the sins that have left so many churches bloodied, bruised, powerless, and even dissolved. Leaves local churches with a terrible witness to the world. Because think about it. The reason divisions and quarrels exist, as Jesus has been telling us, on every human level, is because those around us don't see things our way. They don't do things the way we think they should be done. They don't listen to us. They don't follow us. They don't obey our suggestions. They don't align themselves with our particular views of the world and how things ought to be. Or they don't present us with the proper gratitude, admiration, respect, and honor that we think we are due. This is a human problem. All of us to varying degrees would rather be at the top of the pyramid leading down by fiat than leading up from the bottom. I mean, think about your own life. I was asking myself these questions and listen, um, I answered in the positive more often than I would like to. But how many of us at one time or another have thought to, my, to ourselves, if only I was in charge here. If only the people would just listen to what I have to say, everything would work. If only I were in charge of the country, everything would run smooth. If only I were in charge of this church, everything would run smooth. If only I were in charge of this workplace, this group, this club, this ministry, this fill-in-the-blank, everything would go smoothly. 
Am I the only one who's thought that? All right, good, thanks. <laughs> a couple of people saying no, good. Well, not good. <laughs> we all think in certain circumstances that we are the best person for the job, that we should be in the top-down leadership post. And if others would just simply listen to us, do what we say, follow our dictates, then everything would go well. And that's the position we all strive for. And one of the great examples of this all-too-human tendency to avoid bottom-up leadership in favor of top-down roles comes to us in the position, in history, in the position of the Bishop of Rome, one that we call the Pope today. In order to understand this, let's go back. Let's get a little bit of a history lesson here. Let's go back in time to the 5th century. The early church in the 5th century, by, this, by the 5th century, had been organized into five major heads, or five major what we call patriarchates. They were scattered kind of throughout the Roman Empire, and the, the leaders or bishops resided in these five influential cities. Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. And for the first few centuries, these elected bishops worked together to make decisions for the church, exercising oversight of the church from the ground level up while recognizing the Roman bishop as the first among equals because Rome was the most prestigious and influential city in the empire. But you and I know, hopefully we know, shepherding the flock of Christ is no easy task even in the best and most conflict-free of times. One can only imagine, therefore, what, would have been, what it would have been like as the Visigoths, led by their Gothic leader, when I say Gothic, I mean the people group, not a man with white makeup and a long black trench coat, their Gothic military commander, a man named Alaric, breached the walls of Rome for the first time in over 800 years in the year 410 A.D., for eight centuries, Rome stood as the center of the world, exerting its power and might over the nations and cities and peoples, defeating territory after territory and group after group, incorporating them into its ever-expanding empire. For 800 years, barbarian hordes all over the continent strategized and planned and attacked Roman legions, hoping to bring Rome to its knees, hoping to bring the empire down. And for 800 years, the well-trained, well-supplied, well-populated, Roman army brutally crushed, extinguished, and put down all threats to peace, to the peace of Rome. They repeatedly put these barbarian uprisings down so far away from the walls of the city that the average Roman citizen felt no danger, felt no anxiety, the entire, and, and the relative sense of dominance with which they crushed all of these uprisings led the people of the day to simply assume that Rome, stable, strong, and organized as it was, would live on forever. In this day, at this time, the people saw Rome as the center of the known world and thought that it was inconceivable that it might ever fall or even be successfully invaded. Even more, for many, the fall of Rome meant that the world itself was ending for 800 years. 800 years. That's a crazy number. Think of our nations. We think our nation of Canada's old, but how old are we really? 155 years? Something like that? Even our neighbors to the south. 
They're only, what, 250-ish years old? They have another 500-plus years to go before they catch up with Rome. And could you imagine the upheavals and the global disturbances and the cascading repercussions that might come to the world if America were to fall? Can you imagine the agitation and anxiety and that other democratic republics might sense as they now contend with the increased boldness of those who might try to fill that void left by a fallen America? All the turmoil and the turbulence that might occur as people war and fight or a or try to establish or lay hold of seats of power to fill that void, to fill that vacuum in order to exercise top-down leadership and authority over others. If any of you, well, I see a few of you, if you were alive and aware during the events of 9-11 over two decades ago, you remember the world, right? You remember what a breach of America's walls, so to speak, felt like or brought upon the world for a season. Panic. Fear, grounded aircrafts all over the world, wars, and the rest. Even today, you might not know it, but we still live with the repercussions. Every time you have to take your shoes off at the airport and have them checked, or take your belt off, every time you, every time you want to bring some sort of liquid onto the plane, but it's got to fit into a tiny, tiny, tiny little bottle, or else they toss it into the trash can right beside you. All of those arise from this period. They're all consequences of this event. Now, I want you to multiply that by some incalculable number. And you've got the average person at this time during the, time, during the sacking of Rome. Now, it's hard to say what led to the weakening of Rome. The pagans blamed the Christians, saying they promoted disunity within the empire, which is true because the people of Christ called, people, called, the, called the regular populace away from the pagan paganism and rabid Roman nationalism to serving Christ and living in accordance with his values, the kingdom values of Christ over that of Rome. The Christians blame the excessive sinfulness and immorality of Rome, past and present, for Rome's dwindling power, saying that God was now bringing his judgment upon the nation for, his depravity, for their, their depravity. Historians suggest that the excesses of Roman immorality and the decision of Emperor Diocletian to split the empire in two and move the capital to Constantinople, uh, and along with, in so doing, moving the power, base of power in the empire to Constantinople, led to the weakening of Rome. And Constantinople would end up standing for another thousand years. A thousand years! Along with this, in the 5th century, there was an unprecedented rise in barbarian invasions, and the cost of defending the invasions led to a dwindling in, of Roman coffers, which in turn led to the decline of the Roman army because they couldn't pay the army. While the bishop of Rome, and as we know him, the pope, his power would... In, an influence would expand over time to a, due to a number of factors, leading him to become arguably the most powerful figure in the world by the 12th century. At this moment, during this era of chaos, when, the, when Rome's centuries of dominance had fallen and competing kingdoms now warred with each other for control of the lands within that old empire, as these wars raged with no one coming out on top, leading to even further instability in the regions, while the empire was... And while the empire was no longer the, the empire that it was, the city of Rome still stood, a shell of its former self, enduring much plundering, 
And also, when the last Roman emperor was deposed in 476, leaving the city leaderless, the Roman bishop became the de facto leaders in the city. But there came a time amongst all of this chaos when a famine struck the city because an intent, a flood came through the city and wiped out the food supply. And it caused such unsanitary conditions that people in the city were sick, death was rampant, people walked the streets hallucinating, and the phrase became popular, death roams the streets of Rome. And on top of that, the now powerful and united Lombard kingdom had set its sights on conquering the entirety of Italy. And at this moment, at this moment of chaos, at this moment of uncertainty, at this moment of um, death roaming the streets, the bishop of Rome, a man named Pelagius, died, leaving Rome with no one to lead it. Now, which one of us would want this job posting? How many people do you think wanted the job posting in this day? I'll give you an example. I'll give you uh, the answer. No one. No one wanted the position of pope. No one desired the role of Roman bishop. You couldn't find anyone to take the post. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that when the position of Pope called for a leader with fortitude, for a man to work hard with little to no glory, to work from a bottom-up role of service in a time of chaos, no one stepped up. No one fought for the position. You did not have 50 cardinals lining up and waiting to see the white smoke come from the chimney of St. Peter's to be installed themselves as the new pope. No one put themselves forward to lead upward because generally speaking, humans only desire a position when this position, when it became one whereby you exercised authority from the top down. When you became the leader who lorded, over, lorded it over other men, it's only at that point that people clamored for the position, fought for the position, even purchased the position. And in their desperation, the people elected a, a, a man they called Gregory against his will to the position. He didn't want the role. In fact, he tried to get the leadership in Constantinople to annul the vote so that he wouldn't be pope. They didn't, and so he begrudgingly took the position. And he ended up actually leading the people quite well. He began organizing the distribution of food so that everyone had something to eat. He supervised the rebuilding of aqueducts that had been destroyed during the many raids and attacks on the city. And as a result, city health strengthened over time. And he even went out and uh, negotiated a peace with those Lombards who were threatening them, and he rebuilt the walls of the city. And in so doing, Gregory became the default ruler in Rome, and by his labor, the prestige of the, of the papal position once again rose. And because of Gregory's leadership, the people started to believe that God was with Gregory, that God was with the Bishop of Rome, and they started calling him Gregory the Great. And now, now that Rome had been sufficiently organized... And the role, of, the role of the Bishop of Rome once again garnered some level of prestige. It now garnered some level of status and top-down executive in author, authority in and over the city. Now guess who wants the position? Everybody! Nobody wanted it when it was a bottom-up position where you had to lead with fortitude, and now everybody wanted it when it was a seat of status and position and power. And now, as those elected to the position, 
They started making all sorts of claims, exerting ever-increasing influence and power from that day forward, incrementally expanding the power and authority of the papacy until it reached its pinnacle power in uh, the year 1198 to 1216 under a pope named Innocent III, who at this point, under his leadership, he had the power to enforce his will even over the kings of the nations in Europe. So again, you see, no one wanted the position when it called for leadership from the bottom up. And everyone fought for and strove against each other to attain the position when it meant exercising authority from the top down. It's the age-old human tendency, isn't it? The age-old human desire for accolades, for the prime seat, while steering clear from the difficult labor that is called service. And we noted this same thing last week when we covered that moment when the when the mother of James approaches Jesus with her two sons in chapter 20, verse 21, and requests that Jesus says that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. James and John's mom come to Jesus and says, let my sons be seated in the seats of highest prestige and highest honor and highest authority. Say that my two boys are going to be seated beside you yourself, Jesus, in your coming kingdom. To which Jesus replies, These seats will be given to whomever the Father selects. But you should know, James and John, that the way to such seats of honor is not by ruling over others. It's not by stressing and bickering and quarreling with others about your supposed preeminence. But it's you gain these seats by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus, identifying with him in his suffering. The cross comes before the crown. And this will mean a life of trial and difficulty for the name and sake of Jesus. It will also mean a life of service to others. If anyone would be great in the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus, they must serve their fellow brothers for the sake of Christ. But the remaining 11 disciples, they heard about this question posed to Jesus. They thought of it as a ploy to capture for themselves these honor seats. And so in verse 24 we read, they were indignant at the two brothers meaning they also still hadn't learned what Jesus had spent so much time and effort trying to teach them. So you got the two striving for the seats of power and honor and prestige, and the ten also wanting those seats, and so getting mad when somebody else tries to beat them to it. They all want the prime seats. And so, verse 25, Jesus calls all of them to him. You see that? Jesus called all, he summoned the twelve to himself. And he said to them in verse 25, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Meaning, you are well aware that the rulers, that word right there means political rulers, princes, leaders, magistrates, judges and authorities, the legal decision makers in a society. You know that these types lord it over those same Gentiles. That word there means they dominate they overpower. They exercise control over their subjects. This is what the kingdoms of the world do, said Jesus. They rule downward. And they seek at all moments to continually consolidate and expand their power to lord it over the people. To bring their power to bear on their citizens in oppressive ways. This has been true in every generation of, and pretty much every single type of governance known to man, whether it's Pharaohs or kings or despots or commandants or presidents or prime ministers, all of them 
have been characterized by a lording over or by a ruling down or by a labor or attempt to exercise a dominating of their peoples within the borders. And when Jesus speaks these words, he does so at the height of Roman power within a nation that is characterized by domination, by authoritarianism, by an emperor who lorded his power over the subjects in Rome, who exercised control and dominion over them. Jesus said, you know this, you can see it. But it's not only the kings and princes who do this, but look at verse 25 again. Also, their great ones exercise authority over them. The great ones here describe those who are not a part of the political system directly, but are still people of wealth, stature, and importance. They hold high and influential positions within the society. For us, we might see them as sports heroes, or movie stars, or famous singers, or presidents of large corporations, those who are decision makers and culture makers in a society but have no proper political position. So while never, not everyone might become a ruler, not everyone might have the capacity for a life in politics. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like in our day anyone can become a great one by this definition. The other day I took my children to Niagara Falls to spend some family time together and perhaps I spend a little bit too much time in my study. But I noted a, sig a significant increase in, an, in the number of duck lip selfies I saw people taking in front of the different attractions at Clifton Hill. Y'all know the duck lip selfie? Right? And then on the way home, we stopped at Staples and Walmart to pick up some school supplies. And for the very first time, maybe I haven't been to these places in a while, but for the very first time I saw entire sections dedicated to the sale of lights and microphones for those who are trying to become influencers on YouTube and TikTok and whatever else. I've never seen that before. This is the first time. I'm like, there's an entire row, longer than our sanctuary, of different lights for people to have their faces shine on YouTube. These are the ones trying to become the great ones in this world so that they can influence people in this world. These are the types that are being spoken of here when they actually make it to this position of authority. And we see it, right? People are filming themselves doing the most ridiculous things to gain followers and social positions. It is these, when they attain status in society, who are the ones that Jesus said tries to exercise authority over them. Meaning, they try to reign, they try to exercise a sort of sovereignty over the peons who don't reach their level of influence. The Christian standard version actually translates it like this. They act as tyrants over others. I read an article the other day that speaks to this very thing. When you get these famous people who tell us things like, we need to take care of the planet. Yes, we do need to take care of the planet. But while they're telling us to take care of the planet, they're taking private jet flights six times a day to beat the traffic so that they can make it 10-minute ten, ten flights on their private jets while they're telling us to take care of the planet. This is, what's, this, is what is, this is what he's meaning here. These types who tell you to do what I say, but don't think about what I do. 
And the 12 disciples, they'd taken their cues about greatness from the world. And so Jesus, taking them aside for this moment, in essence tells them, your minds are too conformed to and shaped by the ways of the world. You are still thinking of status according to the worldly definitions. Status, seats of honor, influence, preeminence, renown, distinction. And for you, this must not be the case. And that's the same for us, too. Even for you and I, here this morning, our concept of greatness might very well be shaped by the world that we live in, right? Which is why you and I might feel a rush of excitement if you're walking down the street and you meet your favorite sports star or your favorite movie star on the street. And what are you going to do if you see your favorite sports star or movie star on the street? You're going to look for a piece of paper. You're going to try and, hey, you got a pen? You're going to run up to them. You're going to try and get the autograph, right? Because there's this rush, there's this thrill of excitement when you encounter someone like that. Why do we not feel the same thing when we encounter the server who brings us food at the restaurant when we go out to eat? Or when the person comes to take our recycling away week in and week out? Why do we not feel that same thrill and rush? It's because our minds have been conditioned by the world to see greatness a certain way. It's a sad state of affairs, but that's how the world operates. Culturally speaking, we will shower more respect and adoration on the great ones in the world who use their influence to exercise authority over us than we do those who live with us and move with us and serve among us and serve us. And the disciples here, they don't want to be servants either. They also want to climb the ladder and reach the seats where they can rule and be great. And Jesus practically revealed this in John 13, when Jesus took it upon himself to wash the feet of his disciples, teaching them a lesson in humility and obliging them and us to follow in his footsteps. You remember that, right? Dirty, sandaled feet as the disciples walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem. Usually when they would go into a house, there'd be a basin there for people to wash, feet, wash their feet upon entry into the home because they were dirty and dusty. Usually, if it was a Jewish home, you'd have a Gentile servant because washing feet was such a menial task in Israel that no Jew would do it. So the disciples on this occasion all sat around with dirty feet, all looking at each other's feet, and none of, them none of them getting up to do anything about it. And in all Jewish literature, there is not one instance anywhere of a superior washing the feet or serving an inferior in this way. Nowhere. The only time is when Jesus does it. In John 13, we read, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Listen here. What do we learn from this text? We learn that Jesus, A, knew that his hour had come. The time had come for him to suffer many things from the chief priests and the scribes. The time for him to be delivered into the hands of men, to be flogged and mocked and crucified had come. He knew that it was his time to depart out of the world to the Father. He had come from God and he would soon return to the Father. Death was merely the passage for that to occur. 
Jesus knew exactly where he was, or who he was, who his father was, where he came from, and where he was going. He also knew that the father had given all things into his hands. As we read in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, for example, all things have been handed over to me by my father. See, Jesus knew that he was truly authoritative, that all things were given to him. He understood his universal sovereignty. He knew his origins. He knew his future. He knew that he was the only true great one. And what does he do with that level of authority? As his disciples sit around fighting over seats of honor, striving against one another for increased status, Jesus, the one to whom all authority is actually given, the one to whom all honor is bestowed, he stands among them, and what will he do? Will he destroy Judas, the betrayer, the one who is about to leave and and betray him over to death? Will he shut all the mouths of his enemies? Will he do what the world does? What would you do? If you had all power and all authority, what would you do with that? Would you shut a few people up? Would you order and demand that people fall in line and listen to you because your ways are the ways that everyone should follow if they want everything to operate smoothly? Would you get back at someone who's hurt you? Would you silence everyone who disagrees with you? You and I know who our example is, right? If you follow Christ or claim to love Christ, then your example is Christ. He is the one we look to for blueprints on how we live and act as kingdom citizens in this world. And his example to us and his command to us is radically different than that of the world. And he said as much to his disciples in Matthew 20, 26. He said, it shall not be so among you. You shall not act as the world does, but you will look to me as your template. Think about it. Who possesses more authority than Jesus? No one. His authority infinitely exceeds that of all kings, rulers, powers, principalities, dictators, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, CEOs, throughout all of history, every single one of them put together. You and I are far too warped and sinful and corrupt and broken to be trusted with such a level of power and authority. I mean, think about what we've done with the, little time, with the times we get a little bit or a little taste of authority. We've got to be so careful. And I mean, even when the so-called shepherds of the flock of Christ in our own day are more concerned with seeking for themselves platform and celebrity and authority and greatness, and these are supposed to be the examples to the flock, what are we supposed to think? when those entrusted with helping the saints grow up into Christ are more concerned with amplifying their own status. I thank God for the witness and the word of Jesus because His word cuts through the weeds and corrects all of our errors, every Christian's errors. This shall not be so among you. And Peter will actually go on to talk to use this word in reference to elders and pastors in his first letter when he says to them, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And the word for domineer here is the same word Jesus used in Matthew 20, 25 for lord it over. 
Jesus here is the one with all authority. He is our example. So what did he do? He displayed his confidence in the Father by serving the disciples. And not just 11 of them, but he served Judas as well, his betrayer. Christ, our model, exhibited no self-righteousness, no pride, no lording it over the others. No, he simply served the twelve. Now listen, this displays a level and a depth and a power that is not available to you and I in our natural strength. To humbly serve and seek the advancement of others is one of the greatest evidences of a renewed heart in you, one that has truly been born again. And this because when you think about it, now think about this for a second, there is no real power needed to gossip, is there? Or to slander, or to be bitter, or to remain unforgiveness in unforgiveness, or to hold grudges, or to lash out in anger. Listen to me, all of this is easy. Just let your flesh lead, and it'll be right there. Just give yourself over to your natural desires, to the deceitfulness of your heart. Easy. It takes zero fortitude, it takes zero greatness to follow your fleshly impulses. But to forgive, but to build others up, but to serve from the bottom, these are true acts of power that one can only live out when a person understands their inheritance in Christ their position in Christ, their eternal future with Christ. Only in, with, and by Christ can we move from this self-righteous indignation of the disciples to the humble service that Jesus calls for from them, from us. I mean, think about it for a second. Imagine having to serve Judas. Judas! Imagine knowing that this man is going to go and sell you over to death for a few measly pieces of silver, could you serve him? Could you rise up and wash his feet? Jesus did. And for you, if you are bearing ill will toward a fellow brother or sister, have they, like Jesus or Judas, sold you over to your death? No. Something less, if you're still here, probably. Look to Jesus. He displays what true power is in this circumstance. So listen, are you going to rest in the easy way that is the way of the flesh? Will you travel the broad, spacious road of disobedience to the command of Christ? Or will you follow the example of the one to whom all authority is given and act in a way that is truly great? Truly great in a way that only one who is in Christ can act. Because as Jesus continued, this is not how it's supposed to be with you. But verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Meaning the one who strongly desires greatness, the one who truly wants to be great. Such a person must be a servant to others. And the word for servant here means we must be those who work for the good of others, for their edification and spiritual growth. And... Verse 26, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Whoever would strongly desire the seats of honor in the kingdom, such must be slaves to other. And the word here in Greek is doulos. And it actually means slaves in the Roman sense of the term. In the Roman sense of the term, a slave 
sold themselves into the service of another and in so doing laid all of their rights down, gave up all claims to self-governance and autonomy, and their lives were now solely focused on the betterment of the new household in which they lived. This is another way of saying what Jesus has already said over again, over and over again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And in so doing, we follow Christ, our example, as he said, even as, or in like manner to, the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't take on flesh and make his dwelling among us here, look, to be served, but to serve. Meaning, to bring about spiritual growth and edification and salvation. And serve he did in the most spectacular and costly of ways. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He willingly and voluntarily surrendered his life as a ransom, as the price paid to release us from sin's bondage and penalty. He laid down his life as the payment necessary to set the captives free, to set you and I free from sin's penalty. He gave up his life to save everyone, to save all who would truly turn to him in faith and repentance, to all who would call out to him for salvation. And look, it says he gave his life as a ransom for many. That word there, for, that little for is very important because it means literally in place of. The concept being that Jesus paid the price for our lives with his own blood as he stood in our place as our substitute, bearing in and upon himself the judgment and the penalty that we deserve for our sins. This is how Jesus serves us. This is our blueprint for how we are to treat and love and live among each other. Jesus is our model. So while the disciples are fighting over the prime seats of honor, Jesus repeatedly modeled for them this life of service. One they must live if they actually hope to be great in the kingdom. As he had in the washing of the disciples' feet, he left them a practical application in John chapter 13 saying this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus looked squarely at the disciples and said, Do you get what's happening here? I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I am your example. I show you my love for you through this and through other acts of service. And you as my disciples, who are not greater than the teacher, are to do as I do. And in John, the phrase phrase Jesus used is this, You ought to wash one another's feet. Or in other words, you ought to serve one another. This word ought is a strong word. It means you are obligated. You are obligated to serve each other and recognize that no act of service is beneath you if you are my disciple. So in closing, for any of us, including myself, who refuse humble service to our fellow believer, 
believing that our dignity surpasses that of even Christ himself, may it never be. And may we all, as we bring this section on humility to a close and move into looking at the final week of Christ's life in the near future, believe and take seriously the underlying theme of this entire section. As Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And listen, give me another minute. (laughs) I know for myself, to my own embarrassment and shame, just how easily and quickly I can and often do slip into self-righteousness. How frequently and almost effortlessly lording it over or pride or any of the numerous other associated and connected sins feel at home in my own heart. I can far too easily act like the rulers and the great ones in the world. It's an awful sickness in myself. And listen, it's an awful sickness in you too. It's an awful sickness in each and every one of us. This is one of the areas in which the battle between our flesh and our spirit rages every minute of every day. Because I really don't think any of us wake up in the morning and say, you know what, how can I be more self-righteous today? It kind of sneaks up on us. The enemy is very crafty and cagey. We begin to think ourselves on some moral high ground over others and we compare our lives with other people's lives and conclude that we have maybe our lives more together than they do or that we're smarter than them. When each one of us, you and I, must remember that we are all in the same situation. We are all debtors to God's grace, unworthy of that grace, and yet saved by that grace. And no matter how good and together we think we are without that grace, we'd all be damned forever. Oh, that our pride, collective and individual, might be laid bare. Oh, that God would expose it for our good, that he might expose the folly of our self-righteousness Oh, that he might put to death all of our foolish indulgence in these wicked sins so that we might better and more devotedly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Oh, that we might look to Jesus considering his service for us in taking on flesh, making his dwelling among us and coming to seek and save the lost. Oh, that by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in all of us who are truly saved, all of us being ourselves so completely undeserving of that salvation, all of us having committed oceans of sin might thoroughly recognize our situation. Undeserving sinners saved by a gracious God and as a result imitate our Lord as we unreservedly, unashamedly, and without reference to self show grace and love to our fellow sinners. For the glory of the Lord and the sake of the name of Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and the warnings and the exhortations that you give us in it. Lord, I can't speak to the hearts of everyone here this morning. I can speak to my own. And uh, I confess and commit to you the battle that consistently rages in my own heart in this particular subject. 
but I've come to conclude that when I know my own heart well, I know everybody's heart. We ask together as a body of believers that this would not be a place that ends up like oh so many churches divided in, in factions, but I pray that you would, starting with me and moving out to everybody, bring us to a place where we serve one another in love for the sake of your glory and for our witness as a body to this world. And we ask, knowing that it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we can, we ask that your Spirit would be working in us to such a powerful degree that people couldn't outside will not be able to miss what's happening in here. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.